Welcome to another podcast from Generations Church. We trust you will be encouraged today. Well, somehow I left the house this morning without my iPad, so we're back to old school tech, preaching off a laptop, which I know isn't that old school of tech, but uh, it's been a long time since we had to do it this way. All right, um, let's just let's just get into it. Um, part three of our series, Made to Worship. We've established so far that you're made to worship, and um, we're going to talk about that, uh, obviously, throughout every step of this series, but we need to come back to the understanding of, in some cases, the why we worship, but today I want to talk to you about the where we worship from. And this is a pretty loaded topic, and so we're going to go through some biblical history and some theology on this issue. Uh, not this issue, this topic, because it's really not an issue at all. Um, but I want us to understand why it is, like, why do we stand in the places that we stand and sing and talk and, and, and give praise to the Lord? And it's really important that I think we grasp these basics. Now, if you are relatively new to faith in Jesus, um, sorry, I'm just finishing a cough drop as well, emails, cough drops, all the things. Um, if you're relatively new, here's what I want to tell you. Just keep doing what you're doing. Okay, don't, don't, don't get too tangled up or too worried about, about, you know, doctrinal definitions and theologies because these things will come along um, as you read your Bible and as you grow as a disciple of Jesus. Uh, but for those of you who are, you know, coming from tradition of church, I think there's a lot of poor tradition that's taught in church. And frankly, there's some downright bad doctrine sometimes taught in churches. And, and so there needs to be reform from time to time to these uh, misnomers, if you will, uh, about certain topics we come across in the church. And the truth is, is there is a theology, there is a study of God in everything we do as a church. And so today as we talk about the where, I just, I want us to, to hear what God has to say, maybe just this way, as if it was the first time you ever heard it. Okay, can we do that this morning? Okay, let me pray for you just so you have to do it that way. I'm just kidding. Prayer is not about manipulation, just so you know. Uh, but Father, I just uh, pray for this moment we're in right now. We thank you, Lord, for your presence this morning and how good it is to be in your presence. We thank you for it. And Holy Spirit, I just ask now that you would quicken our ears and bring alignment in our hearts. Lord, bring to remembrance those things that Christ taught as we talk through the Word of God today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So uh, how and where are we made to worship? That's the question. And today we're going to tackle the where because that will help us establish, I think for next week, um, more of the how we are to worship. Now, we know we're to worship in spirit and truth, but I mean, what does that really mean? That's, a, that's, a, that's kind of a, a, a vague statement, if you will, because, well, it's kind of vague and broad. But we know we're to worship in spirit and truth because that is the worshiper the Father seeks so the how is going to become a part of the conversation, but the where is important as well. And it's a good question to ask, of course, for this series titled Made to Worship. And, but I want to just say this. We are not simply made to worship just because we have vocal cords. Although the fact that we do have vocal cords uh, and the, the way that they are made and designed is very interesting to me as men are created, as human, humanity is created in the image of God. Now, it's not just because we have vocal cords, but I'm really uh, more convinced than ever that it is a part of it. Now, listen to this. Many creatures, in fact, most of the creatures created by God, I would say, have voices, right? Dogs have voices. Cats have voices. Birds have voices. Whales have voices. And we can go through the animal kingdom and through nature. And we can, I mean, even the wind has a voice in that it makes 
a sound. And that, that really is kind of a principal, uh, a principal reality of how vocal cords and how sound works, of course, is the movement of air. But uh, we, we can look around in all of creation and, and we see creatures that have a voice in that they can vocalize something. And it's usually for communicative purposes, right? But we are the only ones who are going to have the ability to speak. Now, let me define speaking just so you don't run away because I know some of you have dogs and you say speak and the dog barks. And the dog may even bark with the intent of receiving something like a treat or a pet on the head. But let's just define it a little further. And what I mean by speak is the ability to take thought and make words that can be translated or written or reworked or ordered. The ability in speaking is to share complex ideas as well as simple ideas. To be able to share emotion, intention, reaction, even humor and innuendo. That's what it means to speak, right? It's, it's a lot more than speak, roof. It's just, just more to it than that. And if you think that this is not the case, let me point out to you something wonderful uh, from nature. Um, if you think that we're just a slightly more complex animal, I, I, would, I would say this to you. Well, that would mean you are just like so many dogs who communicate by sniffing so many bus stops. I had to ask Amy what I was allowed to say in church today, and she definitely said I wasn't allowed to say butts. <laughs> but really, what would separate us from dogs if really that's all that speaking is? I mean, you would, you would have not had to propose, guys. It would have been a totally different bus stop sniffing interaction. I know some of you are still waking up and getting it. I'm going to just wait for another five, six seconds for you to catch up with us. And listen, um, it's strong imagery in a way, but really speaking is so much more than communicating a basic about internal drives. Is it not? It is, even though you didn't know an answer. That's okay. Some of you are in shock that we went there, but if you hang around here long enough, you'll realize boundaries and me, nah, we don't do each other. All right, so the question then becomes, since no other creature can speak the way that we speak, why did he form us to communicate? And now for the message today, where, where is our standing from which we communicate with God, where we worship God, where we have relationship, where there is intimacy with God? And we can't, talk about with, we can't talk about worship without the understanding of the where. And by that I also should say, by that I mean it's, we're talking about a place of standing exemplified through Scripture by the places people worship from. We're talking about something that is exemplified in Scripture, our standing, as much as we're talking about the literal place where we see men and women worship God from. Genesis... Um, Three, uh, chapter 3, we read about the original deal. Before man fell to the influence and essentially the consequences of sin, it appears that God walked and talked with man and woman in the garden. And this is what it says. We can just read it together, Genesis 3, 8 to 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Now, those of you who have read Genesis chapter 3 will probably remember the rest of the story. And for now, I want to hit pause because that's actually not essential to what we're talking about today. It's by understanding of this passage that theologians largely agree on this point, that we believe by inference, not necessarily the absolute literal statement of Scripture, but by what is inferred in this package, in this passage, that this was normal behavior, okay? That God would come and walk in the garden, and he would spend time with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. It's, it, what we infer from this, or what is inferred by this, is that this was God's habit, that there was a regular appointment between man and God, and, uh, and, and by man I mean man and woman, I mean humanity, okay? Uh, but there was this, and, and by the way, it's just really important that you understand that, that, that God came to meet with man and woman. Because sometimes there's some, there's, some, there's some doctrinal legalism that starts to creep in that once again kind of just places women in a lower or different place. And that's just not how Scripture views women. Um, but, but, but to stick to my point and not, not run down every rabbit trail this morning, God seems to have had this habit. And yes, it is inferred. The Bible does not literally say, and God was in the habit of walking with man and woman in the cool of the garden. No, it infers that. Why does it infer that? Well, because when God called out to them, they knew his voice. And, and God just picked up a conversation. God didn't introduce himself in this conversation. He didn't say, hi, guys, I'm God. I don't know if God would have to say that, though, for real. I don't know, Stephen. You're, you got a master's. You should be able to tell me, right? Did God have to introduce himself? Not always. No, not really. But, but what's inferred is that there was a relationship that had been going on for some time because God says, hey, where are you? Right? You don't, you don't really say that to people you don't know or haven't spent time with before. And so this inference reminded me of what it's like to be a parent of teenagers. When you become aware of someone's presence entering your home, and hopefully this only happens to you in a really good context, like not like someone breaking in to steal from you, but this is how it breaks down in our house, and, and if you're a parent of teenagers, it probably goes a similar way. So you're, you're, if you happen to be home, you hear footsteps, up the stairs, whatever, come to the house. What's the next sound you hear? Oh, no, door, you forgot the door slam. You know there's a door slam. Come on, parents. Sunday morning, let's get with it. You hear stomp, stomp, stomp. You hear a door slam, followed by what? Often bickering, right? The presence of people is announced in interesting ways. And then you inevitably will hear the refrigerator door open, right? And then you also hear cupboards and pantries open, and you will hear the sound of much rummaging, crinkling of packages, the opening of things, and, and still, the refrigerator door has not sounded its close. <laughs> Come on. Somebody tell me this isn't the truth, right? And, and so at that point, if we're home, are you like, uh, somebody shut the fridge door? Or you also will hear in the middle of that, before the fridge door is closed, Mom, is there any food? <laughs> right? Who knows this? This is true. This is what happens in our lives all the time. The announcement of people in the garden, of God in the garden, was as familiar, I believe, as Adam and Eve, to Adam and Eve as it is to us when our kids come home. They, just, they knew the sound of God coming to walk in the garden, just the way you and I know the sound of our children entering our home. And so that was the reality that they had with God until sin caused this ultimate separation. Talking with God, talking with God was so normal that they simply knew how to do it. So I want to point out 
that the Garden of Eden was the first construct of church. It was the first. There, there had never been anything that looked like a gathering before. I mean, there was only two people in God. So, um, you know, it, it was a relatively new thing. But nonetheless, it was what God started. He had an appointment to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. The construct of the first get-together at an appointed time for man and God. Um, you can call it, depending on your tradition or theology, you might have heard it called to, uh, referred to as a tabernacle or a temple even. And um, it was the garden, and the garden was that first place that God and man got to gather for fellowship, um, ultimately uh, correction, discipline. But I often wonder what that was like as God walked with them in the cool of the day. And I want you to know that there was worship happening. Because here, here's, here, here's one of the things we need to understand. Worship is as much about presence as it is anything else. Worship is as much about presence as it is anything else. Do you know that my wife can feel loved, appreciated, built up, accepted? I, I hesitate to say worship, even though I secretly I do kind of worship my wife. Um, not at the God level. Something underneath that, just a little. But but by presence alone, like encouragement can happen and the building up of people can happen by presence alone, worship happens because of the presence of God. And I am convinced that I cannot be anywhere experiencing the presence of God and not begin to worship Him. Now, this will tie into our place of standing more than anything by the end. I love that God had an appointment with them. And I love that it was the way God designed it to be. Of course, it didn't stay that way. And what we're going to see as we go through these four or five steps this morning is that it never does quite seem to, to stay the way God wanted it to be. Um, and so then we move from, of course, the garden where Adam and Eve were eventually removed from the garden to work the ground. And we come eventually through the passage of time corporately. Now, there were individual moments where uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they, they, they encountered God. They met with God. And there were, certainly, uh, there were certainly visitations of God. But when we get to Moses, we see something new happen in biblical history. In Moses, ex, Moses for Exodus uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 2 specifically, we're going to read the passage. He had a wilderness encounter with God that was an invitation to something else. And so Exodus, um, sorry, if you, remember, if you remember the story of Moses, he's out looking for sheep for his father-in-law, Jethro, and um, he, he, as a herdsman, can't find a sheep, but what he does find that day is a bush on fire that is not being consumed. And as he approaches the bush, a voice from the bush says, Moses, take off your, take off your sandals because the ground you're standing on is holy. Why? It was, it was holy because the presence of God had touched it. More on that in a minute as well. Because that matters to you and I more than you could possibly believe. And so Moses takes off his sandals and has a conversation with God, which ultimately leads to this insane demand made by God through Moses to Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. Exodus 5.1.4 gives this account. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, so that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness." 
But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise he will fall upon us with pestilence or the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labor. Now, what they were asking for was the first ever church retreat. The first ever Bible camp, if you will. Right? Take me out to Bible camp, generations Bible camp. This was, this was actually the first one on a corporate level where the whole group of people were going to go out to what? They were going to go to worship God. Other translations actually just say to go and worship God in the wilderness. God made the demand... God made the request, whichever you want to call it, that they would come out to worship him in the wilderness. And just like back then, I want you to know today, there is still an enemy that desires to enslave you who yells at you when it comes to this topic of worship, get back to your labor. I don't want you going out to worship God in the wilderness or anywhere for that matter. I want you to stay busy with your work, with your labor, with your busyness, with your schedule. Come on. There's still an enemy that's screaming that today at the people of God, just like the enemy Pharaoh who screamed that to the people of Israel. Why? Because he wanted to keep them enslaved. This is a rabbit trail, but it's free for you this morning. And God says, let my people go. Let them come to worship me. Let them gather together to worship me, to celebrate a feast, to have a party in my presence. And there are things that want to enslave you in your life that say, don't you go worship. Get back to work. You should probably not listen to that voice. Just saying. Um, so, of course, that led to the great showdown, if you can even call it a showdown, between God and Pharaoh. Uh, who Pharaoh probably was like, the most powerful human being on earth at the time, I suppose. Uh, but God made pretty short work of him, some plagues. And, you know, here's the thing, guys. Sometimes God will use frogs and flies or blood or death. But God has an amazing way of helping us adjust to his plans and purposes. And life will teach us that it's just easier to get on side with God rather than to be brought on side with God. That's also free. You might want to adjust a few things this week. Um, because the enemy of our soul wants to enslave us and God wants to free us. So that showdown, of course, went the way it went. And we finally see the people get out into the wilderness. God provides for them. And Moses creates something called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. Now, the tabernacle of Moses is an interesting place in history. And it matters to us, actually, even today. Moses, according to the word of the Lord, built a tent that represented a dwelling place for the Lord. And that tent was supernaturally powerful. It really was. And it was designed according to the instructions that God gave to Moses. But what was really interesting is that that was where the presence of God in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, that's where the presence of God would center itself as Israel traveled through the wilderness, the tabernacle of Moses. Now, it's just kind of, it's, it's a little bit church speak, but I just want you to remember the tabernacle of Moses. Because God did an amazing work there. What? He let his presence come and dwell in the midst of his people. 
This was the first time we've seen this since the garden. And yes, God met with people. I mean, God met with Jacob before his name was changed to Israel, and he wrestled with him. And Israel said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And he prevailed until dawn. And finally, the angel, capital A, of the Lord, dislocated his hip. That's quite the blessing. <laughs> Lord, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Okay, you're going to walk with a limp for the rest of your life. But God did bless him for the record, amazingly. But see, this is the first, at the tabernacle of Moses, it is like the first major gathering of, well, I guess a few hundred thousand people. And God's presence was with the people day and night because of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle of Moses. But there was, as there always seems to be with God's people, then multiple seasons of decline. And as morality failed, as people failed to honor the word of God, the, the laws of God, they forgot about the Ten Commandments. They forgot to honor him with the first fruits of their lives. They, they forgot all the things that they should have been remembering. There was a decline in the presence of God until the point where the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant was totally removed from the people of Israel and was now in the encampment of the enemy of Israel called the Philistines. So through that decline, we go from the tabernacle of Moses to something we, in theology, would call the tabernacle of David. Now, the tabernacle of David is, is the, I think, one of the fun ones, for sure, because the tabernacle of David is uh, where things turned into a good worship service, in, in my opinion, just my opinion. Okay? You might hate music, and there's something wrong with you if you do. Just kidding. There, there's not something majorly wrong with you, but there's something off. Or maybe there's something off with me. Who can say? But at David's tabernacle, we see something interesting. David, because of his zeal and his love for God, decided or felt the leading of the Lord in his heart to bring the ark back to the Israelites. And so he did that. They went in and, and got it from the Philistines. And David, uh, he didn't do the greatest job of bringing it. It cost someone their life. But they did eventually move the ark back to Israel. And they set it up in a tent. Once again, we have another tent. Somebody say tent because it's an important word. No, I said say tent because it's an important word. Yeah, there you go. And I know I said it fast, but you're with me still. The word tent is actually a really important word. And again, we'll get to that by the end. Don't worry. But the tabernacle of David cements something in the people of God, which we really hadn't seen. Now, I think it existed all along, but we actually see it established by decree in the life of David, where we're going to worship God with music and with instruments. So when David brought the ark, sorry, not just music and instruments, but music and instruments and shouting and clapping and the lifting of hands and dancing. And there is a whole Davidic order, we call it, of worship that we see in the Old Testament that, that, that gives us the tools for how we actually worship in church today. And for our church, we actually call that a Davidic order of worship. And many churches also do the same. But the tabernacle of David was interesting because it brought the presence of God back to Israel. But you know what was different than before is that there was just a whole lot more interaction between the people and the presence of God. They ministered before the presence of God with singing and songwriting. And it was an exciting time. But once again, there was a decline. And we arrive at something called the temple. The first temple was built by Solomon. Now, we call it the temple of Solomon, but it actually was a temple of the Lord. It's just Solomon was the one who's, who, who is associated the most with its building. Well, because he ordered most of the building. Um, 
And in the story of Solomon's temple, we once again, although it starts out really good, we see this inevitable decline of morality, of the fear of the Lord, of wisdom, and eventually they, they basically just, the, the people of, of, of the kingdom just part the whole temple out. It's pillaged and plundered and traded off and bartered with and until there's nothing left, until ultimately the temple of Solomon, the temple that Solomon built, is brought to ruin. It's actually destroyed. I want you to know that in every society where God has been a part, when there is an ultimate decline in morality, when there is a decline in all these things, there is a decline in worship, and it does bring calamity. All through history and Scripture, you can read it. And I just want to tell you guys, let me just tell you, truly, a worshiping heart is an obedient heart. That's why worship is so important. Because a worshiping heart is a submitted heart. A worshiping mind is actually a submitted mind. Why? Because we are actually telling our heart and telling our mind as we sing words, as we speak words, as we dance, as we lift our hands, as we clap our hands, as we shout, as, as we do all the things, as we pray in worship, we are aligning ourselves. We're speaking to our own souls just like David and Asaph and his sons did. So we arrive at this temple of Solomon and eventually... It changes. And we come from there to another, uh, if you will, a restoration of the idea of the temple. And we arrive near the time of Jesus at the temple. It's called the Herod's Temple. Now, Herod's Temple to me was a very interesting point in history because for the first time in history, the presence of God had something amazing attached to it, in my opinion. It was called the Gentile Court. And the Gentile Court allowed, it allowed Gentiles who normally would not have even been allowed into the, into the front door, the front gate of the temple complex because they are unclean people. They're the Gentiles. In Herod's time, not that Herod was godly, I wouldn't even be confident enough to say that, that, that Herod's building of the temple was even necessarily following the will of God. I mean, I don't know. But it was interesting to me that Herod's temple had the, the Gentile court. And for the first time, Gentiles were allowed proximity to the idea of God's presence. Very interesting because it took 42, 46 years to build the temple, somewhere there. And in that time frame, Jesus is born. Now, this is the best part. You have... The tabernacle of, well, you have the temple of the garden. You have the tabernacle of Moses, the tabernacle of David. You have the temple of Solomon. You have the temple of Herod. And what do you suppose the greatest temple is of all time? Well, it's the temple of Jesus. You say, I didn't, I didn't realize there was a temple of Jesus. Oh, there is. There is absolutely a temple of Jesus. And I'm going to read to you uh, a few verses here. It's about nine verses, but it's worth it. John 2, 13 to 22 says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those... Now, again, when he says it found in the temple, he's actually talking about the Gentile, the courtyard of the Gentiles, the Gentile court. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. I mean, Jesus went, well, he went Jesus on them. 
And those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us that your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them. Now, this is very important. Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? You can hear the sarcasm inflected in their tone. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the words which Jesus had spoken. We move through these temples from the beginning to the final temple. Who is Jesus? You see, Jesus, Jesus is the last temple. I just don't see it. I don't know how I can help you see it anymore. Jesus says, destroy this temple. You may as well just picture Jesus pounding his own chest as he says these words. Because he is literally referring to himself. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And he did. Because they destroyed his physical body. And three days later, he rose glorified. You say, well, how can Jesus be the temple or how can Jesus be the church? I mean, really, how do we get into Jesus then? Well, this is the beautiful thing. You literally are in Jesus. That's how the whole process and plan of salvation is unfolding. You are in Christ. Acts 17, 28, Paul talking at Mars Hill. In him we live and move and have our being. Yeah, but it's kind of a metaphoric in him. No, it's actually not a metaphor. We, we live and move and have our being in Christ. In him. Well, technically, it's still a metaphor. No, I'm telling you, it's not a metaphor. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Guys, our attachment to him. Jesus uses a hundred analogies to try and help us understand what is literally going on. We are in him. We live in him. We move in him. We have our being in him. We sing our songs in him. We lift our voices in him. We sin sometimes even though we are in him. I was going to say we yell at our kids. We fight with our wives. Probably some of you fight with your husbands too. We worship him in spirit and truth. But whose spirit do we worship in? Well, we worship in his spirit. That's how and that's who we worship through. In Christ, our standing is righteous and blameless and holy. Guys, there is no other way in which or through which to worship other than through Jesus. Jesus even says things like, I came. Why? Because he's going to glorify the Father. Jesus did the things he did. Why? His words, not mine. His words, to glorify the Father. The only way to be a worshiper of God is to worship in Christ.
And all the way back through these themes and through these stories, we see this amazing reality. And this is why it's so important to understand where we worship from, not in terms of physical buildings, not in terms of our body position, but the standing that we have because of Christ. My standing in Christ is the ground I have. It is my place from which to worship God, my standing in Christ. Apart from that, there is no value in my words. What value is there in my worship if my feet aren't planted in Christ? Christ is eternal. From everlasting to everlasting. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus, the only begotten of the Father. I can't help but be overwhelmed by this reality. Our standing, our rooting, the the place of our foundation being in Christ is what ultimately will make us and makes us holy. Because everything that God touches becomes holy. It was true for Moses. It's true for Jacob. It's true for Abraham. It's true for Adam and Eve. Why was the garden a perfect and holy place? Well, because God came there. Why was the temple holy? Did, did, Jesus had this discussion. Don't, don't swear by the gold in the temple. It's not the gold that made the temple holy. It's the temple that makes the gold holy. See, it's not my worship that makes it pleasing to God. It's my life in and through Christ that makes my worship pleasing to God. Because in Him, He is the last temple. He is the only temple now. The ones that came before passed away in their time. But Jesus will never pass away. I actually wrote a song about this that maybe we should even sing one day. The miracle of God touching your life and my life. And in the moment that he touches us, he makes us holy. The whole reality changes, even though we might not perceive it. (laughs) We're made holy. I told Stephen, you know, I might lose some people today because we're going to rip through history to kind of come back to this very basic point. And I hope by the Holy Spirit you stayed with us today. I want to worship you. You guys can come back. I'm just about done. And before you think, oh, here's another five minutes, maybe this time it'll be true. When you grasp this, my hope is that it will all become apparent to you that God does want to meet with you. He does. God, God personally wants to meet with you. But you, you want to know something amazing? What Scripture teaches us is that as much as God wants to meet with you, he wants to meet with us. As much as God wants to meet with you, he wants to meet with us. 
And that's so important to understand. Because we live in a world and a generation right now that says, it's all about me. It's all about my fear. It's all about my issue. It's all about my complaint. It's all about my, my, the things that have victimized me. And all those things are going to be true. Because hurt and pain and struggle and abuse, those are all real things. And God wants to minister to all those real things in a real and profound way. He wants freedom for individuals. But he also wants to meet with his people. And so when we come to his presence, we need to understand where we come from. You know, God has always loved tents. God has always loved tents, it seems. And even in the New Testament reality, 2 Corinthians 5, the apostle refers to our bodies as tents. It's his preferred dwelling place. You want to know why? Because God is totally capable and totally willing to be with his people as he moves, as we move. I just want, I want it to be clear that God's presence in your life isn't actually following you around. You're, you're actually just in his presence. But I love that God wants mobility. I want you to know that when we worship God in this church, our place to worship from is in Christ. It's in Christ. And in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 says, I'm a new creation where old things have all passed away and new things come. That morning by morning, as God is faithful to every generation. There's something new. There's something fresh for today. There's provision. There are people. There's providence. There's promise. I want to invite you to sing now as we close the service today. To be gathered together as his people. Thinking of the fact that God said, you know what I want? I want my people to come and meet me in the wilderness. Let him go, Pharaoh. We need to worship God with the fear of Moses, who upon hearing that the ground was holy, immediately took off his sandals. And, and I, I want us to be a church. No, not even me. Let me just say, this, the Spirit of God wants us to be a church, to fear like Moses, to sing and dance like David sang and danced. And the Spirit of God wants us to be a church that worships in prayer with the fervorance that Jesus had for prayer. To read Scripture with the passion that Jesus had to gather with people and read and share Scripture. You see, it's those three things that make it a church. It's what makes us the church.
All the other stuff is going to change. The methodology, the styles of music, the form of building, the clothing you wear, the children you have, all of those things are going to change. But one thing will never change, and that is our place in Jesus when we gather to sing and gather to pray and to praise his name, to worship. Where do I worship from? I worship from my standing in Christ. Let me pray for you. Actually, let's stand together. As we close the service, if you'd like prayer this morning, you can come to the front while we sing this song. We have some men, some women, some children even who are here, part of the prayer team. They want to pray with you. And if you have a need, I just got to say one more time, we say this just about every single week, you just don't have to leave the same way that you came. You don't have to come in here feeling alone with the burden. You can leave this place light of a burden, having stood and prayed with a brother or sister in Christ. And maybe you're here today and you don't really have a functional relationship with your Heavenly Father. Well, the only way you're going to have a functional relationship with God is through Jesus because Jesus claims to be the only way to the Father. And if those words ring in your heart today, maybe it's time that you say, yeah, I I need to bend my will to that truth. And that's so easy to do, and we'd love to pray with you as you do that. So if you want to start a relationship with God today, why don't you just be brave enough to come to the front and talk with someone on our prayer team. Now I'm going to get to the prayer. Father, I thank you for this church family. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the dreams, the vision, the hearts that are represented standing here. And Lord God, in this moment, we humble ourselves under your mighty hand, Lord, knowing that in due time, as we lay our lives down, Lord, that you in confidence will lift us up and lead us in the places we need to go. Holy Spirit, I pray that your truth would ring true in the hearts of people today. Lord, put your finger on us today. Mark us with your presence. Pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us in another podcast from Generations Church. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe to our podcast channel to get a new one each week. For additional information or to partner with us, please check out our website at www.genchurch.ca.